You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today to discuss a school district's ability to discipline students for off-campus conduct. My name is Desiree Serrano and I am an attorney in Lozano Smith's Los Angeles office. I work within the firm's student practice group and the labor and employment practice group with a focus on student discipline, addressing student misconduct, and school safety issues. My co-host on today's episode is Eleanor. Hello, I'm Eleanor Welke. I work in Lozano Smith's Los Angeles office as well, working in the firm's student and labor and employment practice groups. I'm also a former high school teacher, so I have experience in discipline both, both as a teacher and as an attorney now. And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing student discipline for off-campus conduct. So as you've probably seen with texting and social media, there is a blurring of the line between what is school and what is not school. School districts are often faced with determining whether they can discipline a student for his or her conduct while not at school. So today we're going to talk about a school district's ability to discipline a student for off-campus conduct. So the first thing you look at when you're deciding whether or not you can discipline a student in California are two things. The first thing is you need um, a violation of the education code sections 48900 or the related sections would basically give you the causes that you could discipline a student for. Then after that, you need to look at jurisdiction. You have to have jurisdiction over the student as well. And that's the area we're gonna be talking about today. There are a few different ways that a school district can have jurisdiction over a student. The primary way, which, which is probably the typical way you see it, is that student act is related to a school activity or school attendance. This requirement is found in Education Code 48900S, and it gives a few examples. It says this includes while going to or coming from school, while on school grounds, during the lunch period, whether on or off campus, during or while going to or coming from a school-sponsored activity. So those things like being on a school bus while going to an athletic event count as well. It's a little bit different when speech occurs off campus. This is sometimes referred to as a substantial disruption test, kind of as a shorthand way of thinking about it. But there are two elements here, each with its own sub-elements. So first, we say it's the nexus requirement. The speech has to be closely tied enough to the school to permit school officials to regulate it, or it has to be reasonably foreseeable that the off-campus speech will reach the school. So once we establish that first standard, then we look at the second standard, which is the Tinker standard, also kind of the disruption standard. And Tinker is a United States Supreme Court case that was the foundational case about a school district's ability to discipline students for their speech. So under this standard, we look at whether the speech substantially disrupts or materially interferes with the school environment or activity, or it must reasonably be forecast that it will cause a substantial disruption or materi material interference of the school environment, or collide with the rights of students to be left alone in the school environment. Yeah, and I think one important thing for people to keep in mind is that students have a right to free speech. 
So especially when the students are off campus and not engaged in school activities, the students' freedom of speech is the strongest, and a school district has limited ability to discipline a student for their conduct. And this is why we have the above standard that is somewhat of a high standard. Thanks for pointing that out, Eleanor. That reminds me of another po important point to make, which is today we're using the word discipline, but when we use that word, we're really, in this case, only limiting it to the school district's ability to suspend or expel a student, which has specific requirements in the law. Um, so keep in mind, we're not saying that a district cannot take any corrective action. A school district has an obligation to provide a safe school environment to students. So there may be instances where the school district cannot suspend or expel the student, but the school district still has an obligation to take steps to address the student's misconduct. So getting back to jurisdiction, we're gonna talk about a few cases to help provide an understanding of the ability of a, to discipline a student for their off-campus conduct. Now we specifically selected cases where the student was not clearly engaged in a school activity or on campus. Thank you, Desiree. And as you mentioned previously, when looking at whether a district can lawfully discipline a student for off-campus speech or conduct, the court will look at whether the conduct caused a substantial disruption to the school. So the question then becomes, what constitutes a substantial disruption for the purposes of student discipline? And the case law defining substantial disruption is, of course, very fact-specific. Districts must carefully analyze these speech issues on a case-by-case -case basis to determine whether or not the speech did or was foreseeably likely to cause a substantial disruption to the educational environment. There are a handful of cases that districts can use as guidance in making these determinations. While they are not all California cases, they are instructive in that they demonstrate to us how the courts are analyzing what constitutes a substantial disruption. And we're going to be discussing some cases today where the student's language that was used may be offensive to some listeners. We think that the actual language used is important to clearly understand the decision reached by the court, but we want listeners to be aware and we will make sure to give you a heads up before we use any potentially offensive language. So the first case we're going to talk about today is Weiner versus Douglas County School District. And this is a Ninth Circuit case from 2013, and it's out of the state of Nevada. In this case, the student engaged in a string of what the court determined was increasingly violent and threatening instant messages. They were sent from his home to his friends. And in those messages, he was bragging about weapons and threatening a specific uh, to shoot specific school classmates. These messages included very specific details of a potential school shooting, including the date of the planned event, which individuals the student planned on killing, and the weapons and ammunition he had to execute his plan. His classmates notified the school, who correspondingly notified the police. The student was detained by law enforcement and was suspended for 10 days. As a brief reminder, this is a Nevada case, so the timelines for suspensions will be different than those in California. In this case, based on these facts, the court held that the student was lawfully disciplined by the school for this off-campus speech. Specifically, the court found that the 
the off-campus speech in this case was not protected. And this was because it threatened the safety of the school and its students, and it both interfered with the rights of the other students and made it reasonable for the school district to forecast a substantial disruption of school activities. Additionally, the court reasoned that the district did not have to wait for an actual disruption to occur before taking action. And some of the key facts I wanted to just make sure to note, Desiree, but, but the court noted in, in its finding that there was a foreseeable substantial disruption were that the nature of the threats in these messages were alarming and explosive. The messages could be interpreted as a plan to attack the school. The messages confirmed access to weapons. The messages suggested a fascination with a previous school shooting. And the message actually invoked a, one of the deadliest school shootings at that time by a single gunman and stated that he could kill even more people. The messages named specific classmates, identified a specific date for the attack, and the police investigation confirmed weapons and ammunition at the house of the student. And it was because of these facts, the district was, the court held, the district was confronted with a challenge to the safety of its students and that it was reasonable in this situation for the district under these facts to interpret the message as a real risk and to forecast a substantial disruption. Thank you, Eleanor, for that summary. Um, the case I want to highlight is CR v. Eugene School District, which is a Ninth Circuit case out of Oregon that was decided in 2016. You know, most of the cases we're going to be talking about today are about student discipline of students for their off-campus conducts related to use of electronic communications on the internet and social media outlets. So this Eugene case is one of the first cases we have in the Ninth Circuit that talks about discipline of students for their off-campus conduct, but that happened in person. So in this case, the student speech occurred in person. Um, as school was letting out only a few hundred feet from the school's property line. So there were two sixth grade students, a girl and a boy who were walking home and a group of seventh grade students were also going home and were around them and made repeatedly sexually suggestive jokes and comments to the two younger students. Um, these comments included telling the male student that he should take the female student to the restaurant BJ's, which the students um, intended to be a sexual reference and made several other related comments. The comments by the older students to the younger students occurred over several days until one day a school employee was riding her bike on the same path and she noticed that something did not seem right between the demeanor of the two, the two groups of students and intervened. So following an investigation, the student was issued a two-day out-of-school suspension and this case resulted. So in this case, the court did uphold the school district's discipline of the student, and they looked at a couple of things. So first, that nexus and foreseeability test I mentioned at the beginning. So they said the school's action met this test because although the sexual harassment took place off school property, it had a close relationship to the school. And this was because they said all individuals involved were students at the school. School had been let out only minutes before the incident occurred, and the incident itself took place only a few hundred feet from the school door in a park that shared a boundary line with the school property. It could be seen from the school. Um, there was no clear separation of where the school district's property ended and the park began, and it was often referred to as the backfield. 
The court also found that the school met the foreseeability test because the incident occurred within close proximity of the school. I mentioned it was only a few hundred feet and administrators could reasonably expect that the harassed student may be distracted during the school day because of the prospect of being harassed after school. So next the court turned to the Tinker standard and the court found that standard was met as well because the, the sexual harassment implicated the rights of the students to be secure because it threatened the student's sense of physical, emotional, and psychological security. So even though the sexual harassment in this case was only verbal, the threat of unwanted physical intrusion was implicit. And here, the offending student's speech interfered with the younger student's right to be secure and left alone. And thus, the discipline that the school district had implemented was permissible according to the court. Thank you, Desiree. I wanted to talk about another example that we have on what can constitute a substantial disruption. And this is the JS versus Bethlehem Area School District case. This is a case from the Third Circuit out of Pennsylvania from 2002. And, and we just wanted to give you a heads up that we are going to discuss uh, some language that could be found offensive by some listeners. Again, we feel it's important to discuss exactly what the court reviewed. In the JS case, a student created a website for his own computer at home. The website consisted of a number of web pages that made derogatory, profane, offensive, and threatening comments, primarily about the student's algebra teacher and the school principal. While the website did have a disclaimer that stated that by clicking on this website, you agree not to tell any employees of the school district about the site, the site was not password protected. Any visitor could view the site. And specifically in the site, the website solicited donations for a hitman to kill his teacher and depicted her, a picture of her with blood dripping from her neck. Among other things, the website stated that there were employees that engaged in sexual relations with each other, and it had pages describing the physical attributes of this specific teacher and a statement questioning why she should die. The website stated, quote, take a look at the diagram and the reasons I gave, then give me $20 to help pay for the hitman. The website also stated approximately 136 times, quote, F you, Mrs. Fulmer, you are a B, you are a stupid B. The court case in this, in this instant doesn't include the full text of the bad language, but it can be inferred based on what they've put in the case. And in this case, the student was expelled. So the court, the court held three different things. One, that the student's internet website did not constitute a true threat for the purposes of First Amendment. Two, the speech expressed by the student on the website was on-campus speech that implicated unique First Amendment concerns regarding the school environment. And three, that given the website's disruption of the entire school community, expelling the student did not violate his First Amendment rights. Now, Eleanor, this is a bit of an aside, but I receive a lot of questions from school districts about whether or not something constitutes a threat can you talk a little bit about why the court in this case did not think this constituted a true threat? Sure, and, and the court did go through this um, in their analysis, and they noted that in this case, not everyone viewed this website as threatening. There were comments on the website that made the viewers, quote, laugh or crack up. 
And while the website was crude, highly offensive, and as the court explained, a misguided attempt at humor or parody, it did not reflect a serious expression of an intent to inflict harm. Also, the statements were not communicated to the teacher, and there was no evidence that the student in this case had made any similar statements to the teacher on other occasions. In addition, the court noted that the request for the $20 for the hitmen contained no address to which the individual should forward the funds. So basically, there was no real plan. Um, finally, while the teacher here was fearful after viewing the site, it was unclear whether she had any reason to believe that the student had a propensity to engage in violence any more than other kids his age. You know, and all in all, the court found that based on the totality of the circumstances present here, the website as a whole didn't constitute a true threat. And, and just going back to the court's determination that there was a substantial disruption, the court found a substantial disruption here because while well, the student created the website off campus, the student accessed it at school and showed it to a fellow student. And this facilitated the on-campus nature of the speech by accessing the website on a school computer in a classroom and showing it to another student and informing other students about the existence of the website. And that's a really important point, Eleanor, because a school district's ability to discipline a student is strongest when the district disciplines the student for conduct that occurs on campus. So like you just explained, to the extent the district can focus on the conduct that occurred on campus or as part of the school activity, the district will be in a stronger position in justifying that it had jurisdiction to discipline the students. For th so thanks for pointing that out. That's a great point, Desiree. And, you know, just going back to the substantial disruption, just wanted to note a couple other things that the court mentioned. Here, the website was not aimed at a random audience. It was aimed at a very specific audience, which was the students at this particular school. And the court felt it was inevitable that the contents of the website would pass from the students to the teacher, and it would inspire a circulation of the website on the school property. One other important part, point in this case is that uh, that supports the finding of substantial disruption is that this this incident had a direct and impact uh, indirect impact on the emotional, physical, and physical injuries of the teacher. The teacher here was fearful after viewing the website, and I'll. Although it wasn't clear whether she had any reason to believe the student had a propensity to engage in violence, she actually was unable to finish the school year and took, a, and took medical leave till the next year. And this necessitated, in turn, the use of three substitute teachers that unquestionably disrupted the delivery of instruction and adversely impacted the education environment. Court also mentioned that there were the certain students expressed anxiety about the website and their safety. Some students visited counselors. The website was a hot topic of conversation prior to its discovery. And some of the staff and students had a feeling of helplessness and, no, and low morale. Basically, the entire school community was described as if a student had died. And the parents understandably voiced their concerns about school safety and the delivery of instruction by substitutes. And I do have one more case I wanted to make sure to discuss today. And again, this is a case that may include some offensive language, so we want to make sure to give our listeners a heads up. This case is called JC versus Beverly Hills United Unified School District, and it's a United States District Court case from the Central District of California from 2010. Please note that this is persuasive authority, but it's not precedent. So in JC... A student videotaped her friends talking about classmates of theirs, a classmate, a specific classmate of theirs off campus and after school. 
In this video, the students use profanity. They make derogatory, sexual, and defamatory statements about a 13-year-old classmate. Um, specifically, in the video, the friends call this other student spoiled. They talk about boners and use profanity. The students also call the student the ugliest piece of shit I've ever seen in my whole life. The student taking the video encouraged this mean-spirited discussion, telling these students to continue the Karina rant. The video was then posted on YouTube. The plaintiff, in this case, the one that posted it, did not attempt to limit the viewing of the video, but also de instead deliberately contacted some of her classmates to tell them about it. She also texted the subject of the video and told her to watch it. The record showed that about 15 students saw the video the night it was posted. However, the video showed about 90 hits that evening, many from the plaintiff herself. The next morning, the plaintiff overheard about 10 students discussing the video on campus. A student upset about the video is the one that brought it to the school's attention, and the student who posted it was suspended. The student who was the subject of the video spoke to a school counselor, was crying, and didn't want to go back to class. However, about 20 to 25 minutes later, the counselor convinced the student to go back to class. Here, the court held that the fact that the student's conduct took place entirely outside of school did not preclude the district from disciplining the student. However, based on the facts in this case, there was no evidence of substantial disruption or a reasonably foreseeable risk of substantial disruption of school activities as a result of the video, and thus the discipline of the student violated the First Amendment. And here, in determining that the video did not cause a dis substantial disruption or that it was reasonably likely to cause a substantial disruption, the court noted that the video was not violent or threatening. There was no reason for the school to believe the student's safety was in jeopardy or that any student would attempt to harm her. The student never feared for any physical attack, but only felt embarrassed and had her feelings hurt. And her hurt feelings themselves didn't cause any disruption. The student did not confront the plaintiff while at school, nor did she indicate any intention to do so. It took a counselor about 20 to 25 minutes to calm her down and convince the student to go back to class, but she likely missed no more than one class that morning. And while the other students missed a class later because of the investigation, there was no evidence of any ripple effects on class activities or work of the school. There, um, no, there was no widespread whispering campaign that was sparked by the video, and no students were found gossiping about the student or while in class. Um, again, only about five to ten students were seen talking about the video in the morning after it was posted, and so the court did not find a significant disruption here and struck down the discipline. Thank you for going over those cases, Eleanor. So just to kind of compare the cases you discussed and the one I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, so I want to point out a few things that looked like they were important in this case. Uh, the first one being the, the disruption as to the individual who was the subject of the websites or comments or you know expression. So in the Beverly Hills case you just mentioned, you said this student was missed about one class period. That right. was the disruption on her. Versus the Bethlehem case, the teacher took leave for the remainder of the year. So that seemed to be significant as far as a level of disruption. Um, also the need of various people to have anxiety and seek um, assistance from a counselor in the Bethlehem case versus Beverly Hills, it sounded like it was just that one student for a very short period of time. Yes. Um, 
it also sounds like in Beverly Hills, it was, you know, a few students talked about it that day versus Bethlehem. It sounded like it was the talk of the campus for days or weeks. And then, of course, we have the conduct itself, which in Beverly Hills, it is, um, you know, distasteful and bad behavior, but it didn't seem like it rose to the level of the conduct in Bethlehem or Weiner or Eugene, um, when Bethlehem and Weiner really, you know, there was an expression to harm someone of an intent to harm someone in both of those cases. It's kind of some, sounds like some important points when you're thinking about whether or not you can discipline a student for their off-campus conduct. Those are great comparisons. So another case I want to just mention quickly, but we won't have time to talk about in today's podcast is Shen versus Albany Unified School District which is a Northern California District Court case decided in 2017. Now, this case analyzes a school district's ability to discipline students for their conduct on social media. And in this case, it was specifically a student being disciplined for liking racist and derogatory content. So we have a news brief on this topic, and we have the link to it in our resources portion of this podcast. A very interesting case in, in a developing area. So some takeaways for our podcast today is that in order to discipline a student for off-campus conduct, the district needs to show an actual substantial disruption or that it is reasonable to forecast a substantial disruption of school activities or the school environment, or that there is a collision with the rights of students to be left alone in the school environment. So as you saw in the case examples today is you know, what you might consider little facts really do matter and can make all the difference in whether or not a school district can discipline a student for their off-campus conduct. So it's really important that school districts carefully analyze each incident on a case-by-case basis and determine whether there's sufficient evidence to support discipline. So thank you so much for joining Eleanor and me and tuning into Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.